probably experienced that even over this past week. And if you go to the mall at this time of the year, you know what you're in for. Long lines, especially in the return section, you know, expensive credit card receipts, full parking lots, and, and every now and then, you're going to experience one of those mall surveys. You know the folks that stand out in front of the big department stores with the clipboards and they, they try to flag you down and they, they want to ask you a question about who knows what, your shopping experience, the, the latest product or, or whatever. Now, what would you say if I said, listen, let's the two of us go over to Southern Park Mall after our gathering today and conduct one of these surveys, one of these mall surveys. I'll give you a cool clipboard and everything. And the question that we're going to ask is what is humanity's greatest problem? We might frame it a different way in the spirit of the new year. We could also say it this way. What one New Year's resolution would you make for the entire world? Now, if, if we could get people to stop and, from the frenzy of returning their bad Christmas sweaters and actually answer our question, you might imagine we're going to get a variety of responses. The teacher, for example, might say, our biggest issue is our lack of access to good education around the world. And so education, lack of education is really our biggest problem. The business person might say, you know what, that's a bad one, but the real issue is actually economical. So they would point to some kind of resolution of economics. The philanthropist or the humanitarian might say, no, no, th those are bad, but the real issue is global injustice, maybe global poverty. The philosopher might point to a resolution of reason, we need to help people understand how to think and understand the base of what knowledge really is. The atheist might say that religion is actually the biggest problem that we have. Now, as valid as, as a lot of these problems are, the Bible actually gives us a different answer to that question. It gives us a deeper answer. The Bible, you see, addresses the root of humanity's tree of selfishness and pain and pride and perversion and injustice. And the biblical answer to that question can be summed up in a word. And the word is rebellion. Specifically, our rebellion, humanity's rebellion, against God. Now, that's a pretty big claim to make. I mean, we, we might even wonder how valid that is. I mean, how valid is it to say that our biggest problem is that us, that we, have rebelled against God? And, and if that is true, what are the consequences from that rebellion? How did it start? How did it begin in the first place? How has God responded, if at all? And maybe the biggest question of all, what hope do we have in the face of that great human dilemma? And so it's with those questions that we're going to humbly open up the Bible today, and I pray and I hope grow together in grace. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have chosen as an act of your grace to reveal yourself to us through your word. And I pray that as we read its contents, as we study it and we explain it together, that your spirit would illuminate the words off of the page and, and allow our hearts and our minds to see things that we could only see as an act of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, I want you to pick up your Bibles and I want you to meet me in Genesis chapter 3. For those that have a hard time finding your place in the Bible, you'll find it on page 2 of your pew Bibles. Okay, so this is really simple today. We're going to begin a new year in the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. It's what Genesis means, beginnings. And so we start our new year in Genesis 3, page 2 of your pew Bibles. In fact, if you don't own a Bible, please take one of those pew Bibles home. Uh, it's our gift to you. Genesis chapter 3. We're actually going to get through the whole chapter today, so we've got a lot of ground to cover. But as we begin this exploration of Genesis 3, we're going to make several observations about our rebellion. And the first is that our rebellion 
is a willful rejection of God. Our rebellion is, is an intentional, purposeful exercise of our wills against God as Lord and King. Read along with me as I read out loud. Uh, we're going to start with verses 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, and she took its fruit and ate, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So as we read through what is easily the darkest moment of human history, we see that one of the expressions of this willful rejection of God is that we reject God's good word. We reject God's good word. You see this from the introduction of the serpent. He comes and he's a new character in the narrative, a new character in the story, and he's crafty. He's sneaky. He's sly. He, he weaves this little plan of half-truths. And, and the first thing he says is, did God actually say? In this mocking tone, he's, he's questioning the integrity of God's word. And he, he gives Eve this half-truth. She responds, but, but with a bit of a half-truth of her own, not with the full counsel of God's word. She says, no, no, we're allowed to eat the fruit. We just can't touch the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. And, and that was certainly a, an excess of God's original command. So we see straight away that, that the half-truths are actually paving the road to full disobedience. The serpent then responds back with another hissing challenge. He, and he implies that God has somehow selfishly withheld something from his children. He's, he somehow kept something from them, some, some pleasure, some nuance. And he says, if, if they eat this tree that then they would become like God, that their eyes would, would be opened. Now this section of the passage is littered with irony. It's just dripping with irony. I mean, to begin with, we have one of God's created beings, the serpent, who is to be ruled over by man and woman coming and deceiving them. So the created order is starting to become out of balance and upset here. The other thing that's incredibly ironic is that the temptation is to be like God. Now if you've read Genesis 1, you know that Man and woman were already like God, weren't they? In fact, if you read Genesis 1.27, you'll see that God created man and woman both in his image. That was one of the original purposes of us being created, to represent God, to be like him, to bear his image. So in a very real sense, Adam and Eve were being tempted to achieve or to attain something that they already had. So what was really at stake here? What was really happening in that question, we see that we not only reject God's good word, but we also reject God's good rule. To say it another way, we want to be in charge of our lives. We want to call the shots. The issue at stake here was not some nuance or pleasure that God was intentionally withholding from his children. I mean, some of us, some of us need to broaden our definition of what sin is. Sin is, is not as simple as doing bad things. It's, it's much more than that. It's much deeper than that. Sin is actually setting our wills against the will of God. It's like a child saying to a parent, I know better than you. It's like a child saying to their parent, I'll be the judge of what's good and what's bad for my own life. You wait till when I'm in charge. 
I know how to find real fulfillment and real pleasure and real joy in my life apart from you. That, friends, is the essence of the serpent's lie. That is the essence of sin. It's an idea that, that's pretty well illustrated in Frank Sinatra's old song, My Way. It's a catchy little song, but the last verse, listen to this, it says, for what is a man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. The right to say the things he feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. I'm not here to bang on Frank Sinatra, but that, that's really the essence of it, isn't it? My way. And, and, and recording artists all over the years, it's my life, it's my this, and it, it's, it's this sense of, of we want to be in control. And what's so ironic is that we can't be. We can't really control ourselves. We can't really control the world around us. These attempts to rule just don't work. I mean, turn on the evening news tonight. Flip open the newspaper. Just ask the, the corporate CEO who's worked 80 hours his entire life to fulfill himself in his career and to justify his life by his career only to be left with a broken marriage and children that he doesn't know. Just ask that person. Just ask the Hollywood star who seemingly has everything they could ever want, more money than some small countries, and, and yet in a moment of extremely poor judgment, tragically, they'll, they'll accidentally snuff out their life trying to hide or cover up some deep hidden pain. Just ask the religious person who does everything they can to keep all the rules only to later hold their so-called piety over all of their friends and family so they can be morally superior. Our control mechanisms don't work. And there's so many other applications from this section of our passage. I mean, how do, you, how do you view God's word today? Do you take care to know it well, to appreciate and to understand the full counsel of God's word, or, or are you content just going along believing have-truths that only lead to disappointment and disobedience? Certainly this idea of temptation resonates with all of us. We're all tempted. How are we dealing with that? Are we overcoming or are we falling prey to the serpent's hissing words that tell us God doesn't really love us. His love really isn't enough. And so you're, you're tempted to find fulfillment and satisfaction outside of God's good rule and blessing. Certainly this idea of God's rule really hits home, doesn't it? I mean, how do you stand this morning in relationship to God? Maybe you've been coming around here for a lot of years, and yet you'd say, you know, when you put it that way, when you frame it that way, I really am in charge of my life. I like it that way. I don't need God telling me what to do. It's in that moment of honesty that, that you may come to a place of transformation. So we see that our rebellion is a willful rejection of God. We reject his word, we reject his rule, and the next section of the passage shows us that in response, our rebellion merits God's judgment. If God is truly good, right, I mean, if he's, if he's infinitely good, if he's infinitely just, if he stands for all that is good and pure, then, then he's got to respond, and he does. Take a look at verses 8 to 13. And they, meaning Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she, she gave me the fruit of the tree and then I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, what, what is this that you've done? And, and the woman said, well, the serpent, the serpent deceived me 
and I ate. Our rebellion merits God's judgment. And the first thing that we, we observe here about God's judgment, one of the things that it brings out and reveals is that it reveals our guilt. Did you notice that when God gently comes to the man and the woman, in, in his grace, they hide from him? Why would they do that? Why would they hide? Because for the very first time, they felt guilt and shame. In another ironic twist, their eyes were opened, weren't they? But they were open to pain, fear, shame, and humiliation. That's what their eyes were open to. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. I mean, think about that guilty feeling you get when you've been speeding. Certainly not here in Canfield, and, and you, you see those lights flashing behind you, and, and for a moment your, your throat sinks into your stomach. I mean, that feeling of guilt, I know I did it, and I'm going to get called on the carpet for it. Only magnify that feeling by about a million. That's where Adam and Eve were here. But the issue is far deeper than just guilt, because the other side of guilt means that you're no longer innocent. That's why there's all this talk about nakedness in the packet, passage. That's why, that's why they're mentioning this, because nakedness is a symbol of, of purity. It's a symbol of vulnerability and intimacy and innocence. I mean, before our rebellion, there was the sense of inhibition in our relationship with God. We walked with God. It's not just in a literal sense when God came walking. It, it's a symbol, a sign of that pure, unbroken relationship. And since our rebellion, because of our rebellion, our lives are marked with hiding instead of walking. We hide from God, we hide from each other, and the truth is, we oftentimes even hide the guilt from ourselves because it's so hard to square with it. The other thing that we see here about God's judgment is that it can't be avoided. We are accountable to God for our rebellion. Despite their best efforts to hide, despite their best efforts, there was no bush in Eden, there was no tree that could have hid Adam and Eve from the light of God's judgment. It was absolutely inevitable. We also see the man and the woman trying to avoid judgment by blame shifting, right? And God comes to Adam. He says, Adam, what happened? He says, it was her. You know, two chapters earlier, he was praising and blessing God for this remarkable wife that he had given him, and now he's throwing her under the bus. And ironic, this passage is full of irony. And he goes to the woman, and the woman blame shifts. I mean, any of you that are married understand what's happening here. Any of you that have children understand what's happening here. He made me, she made me, he made me, she made me. But the truth of the matter is, is that there's no dodging what's happening. God's judgment is just and it's certain. Now, many years ago, uh, there was a little boy who lived with his family out in the country and their only facilities for restrooms was this lowly outhouse and the, the boy just hated this thing. I mean, in the winter, he'd have to go out there. It was freezing cold. In the summer, it was too hot. And so one day, the, the boy kind of resolved and he hatched a little plan in his mind. And he said, I'm going to do away with this thing because the outhouse sat at the, the top of a hill and, and underneath the hill was a creek. And so after a heavy spring rain, the boy decided, you know what, this is my chance. It wouldn't take much effort to just tip that thing over right into the creek. So he did it. He executed his plan. He grabbed a big stick and he, he started to pry the thing and he pried the thing and then all of a sudden it toppled and gravity took over and it fell right into the creek and, and went downstream. Now, later that day, the little boy's father came to him and he said, son, he said, um, somebody pushed the outhouse into the creek. That wasn't you, was it? And he looked at his dad and he said, you know what, dad, it was me. It was me. I, I did it. And then he immediately made reference to a story that he read in school that day that how George Washington, when he chopped down the cherry tree, he didn't get in trouble because he fessed up to it. <laughs> no, bad. The dad 
he looked at his son and he said, you know, that's a good point, son. That may have been true. He said, the problem is that George Washington's father wasn't in the cherry tree. Yeah. A little, a little levity to break up what, what's a very heavy passage, I realize that, but, but we shouldn't back totally away from the heaviness of this passage. We shouldn't back away from it. I mean, for some of us, the reality of God's merited judgment is found in our guilt. It's present there. You go about your day just buckling under the shame and you, you can't live up to God's expectations. You can't live up to your spouse's expectations. You can't live up to your job's expectations. And so you live your life under the weight of this remarkable guilt and you have no idea what to do with it. Now, the other side of that is those of us that, that maybe are, are hiding our, our guilt behind layers of strength and we, we guard against that. We want the world to perceive us as strong, not guilty. I mean, we start talking about guilt and accountability and judgment. I mean, these things aren't fun. But we all have to square with the fact that we've inherited Adam's nature of sin. I mean, it's easy to point the finger at Adam, but the truth is we would have all done the same thing in the garden. We see that evidence in the decisions that we make each and every day. Judgment is unavoidable. Whether we see ourselves this morning as shameful or strong or any other place in between. So we've seen so far from Genesis 3 that our rebellion is this willful rejection of God, that it merits his judgment, and next we're going to see that our rebellion brings about devastating consequences. Our willful rejection of God has a tangible effect on us personally and on the world around us. Let's continue on. Follow along. Allow your eye to follow on the, the passage here, verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles, thistles that shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There are so many incredible consequences that come from our rebellion. And, and kind of as figureheads, as, as federal heads, God speaks to the serpent and to the woman and to the man. And we're going to name just four consequences very quickly this morning. And the first is that the consequences of our rebellion are cosmic. They're big. In his words to the serpent, God talks about a cosmic battle that will rage going forward between the seed of the snake and the seed of the woman. I mean, the book of Genesis, the rest of the Bible bears witness to this cosmic battle. The world around us, as we open our eyes to see it, this cosmic battle between good, those whom God has elected for his good purpose, and between evil. It's one of the reasons that we resonate so well with fantasy authors like Lewis and Tolkien and even Rowling, because we, we understand and we sense this cosmic battle. The consequences of our rebellion are also relational. When we're not rightly aligned in relationship with God, we can't be rightly aligned in a relationship with each other either. I mean, you see it in God's words to Eve. He told her that her desire would be for her husband, and yet he would be ruling over her. So this relational tension extends to marriage. I mean, God created men to be the servant 
leaders of their home. And yet, what did we see from Adam in the temptation scene? He was passive. He was selfish. Eve was created. Women would be created to be the strong helpers of the home. Instead, we see, we see Eve as feeble and insecure. And so the fall upsets the gifts that we can give to one another as husbands and wives. And this relational tension extends to parents and children. It extends to, to broader families, to communities, to cultures, to nations. All of this stemming from our rebellion against God. A third consequence is, is geological. The consequences are geological. In other words, our rebellion has an effect on nature, on the world around us. God told Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Our relationship with nature is severely broken because of our rebellion. And so instead of ruling over nature in a harmonious relationship, man takes from nature and sometimes even abuses it. And that's not what God originally intended. He intended us to be gracious caretakers of the earth. So the consequences are geological. And finally, the final consequence we see is that the consequences result in death. Verse 19, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I mean, arguably the most devastating consequence of our rebellion. And that's because we're not only talking about a physical death here, and we are talking about a physical death, we're also talking about a spiritual death. From this moment on, every human person is born spiritually dead. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, incapable of loving and cherishing and obeying God in the way that he's created us to be. The great 19th century British preacher Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, few believe thoroughly the doctrine of the fall. They think that Adam fell and broke his little finger instead of his neck. And I realize that's incredibly devastating. That is hard to hear. The consequences of the fall are devastating. Sir Isaac Newton made some of the most significant contributions to science in all the world, specifically to physics. His laws of motion come to mind in particular. And his third law states that for every action, there's an equal or opposite reaction. And one of the common examples to that is when you, we fire a gun. I mean, the force of the bullet coming out of the barrel of the gun causes the firearm to kick back, doesn't it? There's kickback involved. And while Newton's law applied most specifically to physics, it also applies to what's happening here in Genesis 3. We have kickbacks for our sin. There are kickbacks and consequences for our rebellion, and those consequences are devastating. I wonder how you might be experiencing them today. I mean, maybe it's in the tension of a relationship. Maybe you're feeling that relational consequence. It might be a marriage, it might be a friendship, it might be someone in your extended family where there is just tension and hardship and conflict, pain. Maybe you're experiencing a, a deeper emotional battle that points to that, that cosmic issue, that cosmic consequence of the fall. Certainly all of us can identify with the consequence of death, right? As we lose people that we love. Just last week, we had over 50 names that we displayed to honor and to remember those that we lost, just people here connected to our congregation at Old North. And these consequences are by our own hand. We have initiated this pain, this brokenness, and this death. In fact, we might be wondering at this point if there is any hope to be found in this passage in Genesis 3. All we know is that our quick pass-through has shown us that our rebellion is a willful rejection of God, that it merits his judgment, that it brings about devastating consequences. And so I'd, I'd encourage you to just settle in to that moment of hopelessness for just a minute. Just settle in. I mean, we have no cards to play here. 
and it really only leaves us in one place. It leaves us in the place that our rebellion is left to God's resolution. Like guilty people before a judgment bench, we have no representation, we have no case, we have no evidence toward us, we are left only to the mercy of the judge. No amount of New Year's Eve resolutions will fix this. I mean, if this mess is going to get resolved, it's got to be God that does the resolving. And with that, let's check out the final verses of this passage, beginning in verse 20. Read along with me as I read out loud. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man at the east end of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. The end of our passage shows us God's next move in redemption history. And we see first that that God resolves with gracious provision. Amidst all the pain, all the judgment, amidst the rebellion, God resolves to give gracious provision. He could have called the whole thing at this point. He could have waved the white flag and done away with the human race, but he didn't. He extended kindness to cover the shame of the man and woman, preparing them for life after the fall. The other thing that we see is that that ultimately God resolves to end our rebellion. God will not let this rebellion go on forever. And we already saw allusion to this when God mentioned the consequence of death to Adam. But we need to see the garden exile as not some knee-jerk, impulsive decision by a temperamental deity. This was highly strategic and it was also highly gracious because what God is essentially saying here is that I, I can't let them live like this forever. Not like this, not in this state of pain and brokenness and joy, lack of joy, lack of fulfillment apart from an unbridled relationship with me. I'm not going to allow this to go on forever. I'm going to put an end to this. And so God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden. And you notice the end of the passage there references the tree of life, away from the tree of life, away from true life and unbridled relationship with God. That way is shut, is closed. With that, I want to invite the band up, and we're going to land this plane here in just a few minutes. So hold on to that. Think about that. The way is shut. The resolution is in God's hands, but what a predicament, right? What a conundrum. I mean, how in the world is God going to maintain his justice against the rebellion and at the same time restore his beloved creation to a right relationship with him? I mean, this would have to be an act that was infinitely just and infinitely merciful at the same time. And it would also need to be an act that reopened the way to life. I want you to look down at your Bibles in Genesis 3, again at verse 15. God tells the serpent, I will put enmity or strife between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, the struggle between good and evil would ultimately reach a climax at a particular point in history. When a certain seed, a certain offspring, a particular person would undo 
the work of the fall, would reopen the way back to God into a right relationship with him. In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews sheds incredible light on this passage. He says, since we have confidence to enter the most holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. For he who promised is faithful. Friends, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is the resolution not only of this passage today, but it's the resolution to humanity's greatest problem. God resolves our rebellion in Jesus Christ. God pulls off the greatest New Year's resolution in history because in Jesus, he not only provides us another way of life, you know, a new nuanced way of life. He provides us a new way to life, the way to life. Our rebellion, the willful rejection of God that merits his judgment bringing about devastating consequences is fully resolved in the finished work of Jesus. Now, you might ask, how? How is that possible? Justify that for me. Well, in the person and work of Jesus, wrath and mercy meet. It is the one act that is infinitely just and infinitely merciful. Grace and justice collide because the sacrifice of Jesus pays the penalty for our rebellion and he provides an acceptable substitute for those that trust in him, for those that say the only way I can get back in is because of Jesus' work. That's faith. You see, where Adam and Eve rejected God's word and God's rule, Jesus accepted fully God's word and God's rule. So in Jesus, we have a better obedience. Where Adam and Eve fell to temptation, Jesus overcame temptation. And so in Jesus, we have a better response to temptation. Where Adam and Eve hid from God's judgment, Jesus received God's judgment. So he's a better sacrifice. He's a better substitute. And where Adam and Eve brought destructive rebellion through a tree, Jesus brings incredible redemption through a tree. And as that passage in Hebrews says, he provides the new way into God's presence. And because God raised him from the dead and he's alive today, he not only opened the door, he actually became the door. He is the door. John 10, verse 9, Jesus says of himself, I'm the door. If anybody enters by me, then he'll be saved. The issue is how we get back in, and that issue has been resolved fully in Jesus. I wonder if you're here this morning and you've never walked through that door. Maybe you've come to this church for years, but you've just been meandering on the threshold a little bit. You've just been kind of hanging out in the front lawn. My prayer and my encouragement for you today is to get in the house. Get out of the cold. Leave that old life. Turn away from it. Repent of it. Walk away from that life under God's judgment, in pain, in sorrow, apart from a relationship with him. Turn and walk through the new door. Maybe you're here today and you are a Christian, and my prayer for you is that you would treasure this new way fresh today, that you would understand the weight, the significance of what God had to do to reopen this way. It came at great cost to him, no greater cost than it came to the Lord himself, and yet God was willing to do this. And so we're at the same time humbled because our rebellion was so awful, so terrifying that God himself had to die to reopen that way. And yet the gospel also gives us great hope. It exalts us and lifts us to the heavens because Jesus was willing to do that. That should give us cause to worship. It should give us cause to give thanks, to serve one another, to love, 
and to cherish all that God has done for us by resolving our rebellion in Jesus. In just a minute, we're gonna come to the Lord's table together and we're gonna hold some tangible elements in our hands that represent the work of Jesus. My prayer as the ushers come to distribute is that you would take this time to reflect, to think, to savor how God has resolved our rebellion in Jesus and to remember his finished work for us. Also encourage you to hold those elements until everyone has been served and then we'll eat and we'll drink together.